Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. How we doing today? Oh shoot, girl, we're doing good. Why is it a thousand billion degrees? Um, yes. Hi, my name is Vanya, and I'm hot, and I'm never hot, and I'm. Here's the thing: I'm hot and I'm cold, and I hate that. I do not. Oh. I know. I'm an asshole, and I hate air conditioning. I know. I know. I know. Come on. I, but I don't. Oh my gosh. I just don't like to feel like it's air conditioning. I don't like to feel cold wind on me. You know. Fair enough. Well, I'm Avrin and I'm also hot. Uh, and I, I appreciate I appreciate like a really nice just like temperature controlled room. Yeah. I'm with you. Like I don't want to feel cold. Yeah. But I also don't want to feel hot. Like yesterday yeah. or the day before I got in my car. I shut the door. And obviously it's 103 degrees outside like and I have a black car. I know it's going to be hot. But when I inhaled, you know, as you do when you breathe because yeah. you're living. I it the, felt the same way you feel when you breathe in in a sauna. Like I could feel oh, the God. hot air in my chest. And I I actually like laughed out loud and was like, all right, my car's a sauna, a legit sauna. This is cuckoo bananas. But the AC does work pretty decent. So that helps. Oh, my God. Well, that's good. Thank God. Yeah. it's. I went outside a couple of times today and it was just nasty. I was like, I don't it's like just any hot. of It's summer. Feelings. It's summer. I forgot. You know, it's yeah. that's the price you pay for living somewhere where it's 70 degrees in winter, yeah, is that it's gonna be hundred degrees. That's right. In June. That's right. Although it feels hotter than it's ever been, but maybe my mind's playing tricks on me. <laughs> um, guys, my name's Vanya. Again, I'm the rom. I like rom coms. I like rom drums, and I like rom horrors. <laughs> <laughs> I love it every time you say horror. I always am like, did she say horror or horrors? So, but you're saying horror. I now know. I should just. You're not going to say horror. I mean, That's I kind of tried to say horror, but you know, <laughs> rom horrors. 
because, um, well, it'll come out probably in a couple of weeks after or a week after we do this. But we were on, we guest spotted on another podcast called Dismembering yes. Horror, and we did we we walked through a, a rom horror. Horror. Yeah, it was so much fun. So Dismembering Horror is one of our um, our brother podcasts on the Connected Podcast Network. And they invited us on their show. And they picked, I think, the perfect horror movie to yeah. ask us to sit in with and have a discussion about it with them. And I... I think you guys should all just go ahead and go over there and subscribe yeah. so that already is like popping up yeah. when it comes out. It'll I'm really be, excited. I think either next week or the week after, yeah. I think. I'm, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Um, so speaking of that, um, we're, we're going to talk our ROMs and our crimes here in a second, but I'm going to be doing a ROM drum, which I think I told you about last week, but I can't mm-hmm. wait to divulge it. But first, okay, so I went to the library today. With my little okay. children, because it was hot. And I'm like, what, what do you do when it's hot? You go to the library, because there's AC. Love there. it. And they got their little books and whatever. And fine, that's good for them. And they're in, they're in the summer reading program or series or whatever it is. Um, super excited. And it was kind of a big deal. They're like, so you're joining the summer reading series? The kids are like, uh-huh. Calvin's like, I can't read. <laughs> I was like, I will read to you. It'll be okay. No, but then <laughs> I, well, they were like, messing around with the books I was able to like sort of walk away a little bit and I went into the romance section of the what'd you get Vanya what'd okay you get? so I just picked out a bunch of Colleen Hoover books why do I know that name because what she, she did Verity that one oh, ooh, that was so fun I know and I wanted something because <clears throat> there's so many choices I, I actually kind of got depressed walking through all the books I'm like oh my god I'm not I'm never gonna read every book in this life like every book no, in the I know. world. Audible has um, turned into a borderline ob- like addiction and obsession in yeah. my life <laughs> to the point of where like if I'm not speaking to other people, I'm listening to a book in yeah, my ears. I like that. And you know, like doing other things at the same time. But yeah. at some point, I think I think James was like, uh, are those things always in your ears now? <laughs> and I was like, Maybe. Sorry. I'm sorry, but I, I got to find out who the killer is. Yeah. Also, I have a recommendation for you if you Ooh. like romantic novels. Yeah. Because I, you know, I love it all. I am Avern and I am the crime, but yes. I, I dig all, all kinds of things. Um, Emily, I believe the author's name is Emily Henry, and she has at mm. least two books that I've read. One's called like Book Lovers and one's called like Beach Read. And Ooh, it's very fun. kind of like on the nose, like the titles. It, I like know, it. There's like an yeah. author kind of poking at like the idea of being an author of these types of books. They're so good. Really? They're like, they get, you know, they, they touch the sexy vibe. Yeah. Perfectly. But they also like really touch the heart vibe majorly. Oh, I love it. I, oh, So I recommend that for okay, you. Okay, thank you. Because that's kind of why I was, conf- I there were so many books I got overwhelmed. So I was like two of them. So I went, I got some Colleen Hoover books and then I also got... Uh, Alice Hoffman. It's the prequel to F- Practical Magic. I think it's called oh. Magic Lessons or something like that. Anyway, I'll, I'll report back. So there's my rum for the can't week. Can't wait to hear. I can't wait. So my crime for the week, I was having, it's been kind of fun. Like now that it's hot outside, uh, yeah. we've started going back down to like the grill fire pit area and it's turned into almost like a little mini block party. Every time we go, you know, we meet the same yeah. neighbors and then new neighbors and there's always music being played and food being grilled and I was chit-chatting with my neighbor um, and I won't name her only because I didn't 
ask if I could do this. Uh, and we were, she was asking me actually about this podcast. And I was telling her, you know, what it is, how it came to be. And I was like, oh, I've just always been into true crime. And I explained kind of like my origin story of like how it started for me. And so we then somehow were talking about downtown LA and the horror of living there. And she was like, yeah, I lived down there for 12 years. But when a woman was murdered in the in my next door neighbor's um, apartment, we decided it was time to move out. And I was like, oh I'm sorry, God. what? And she told this crazy story about how she came home. There were police everywhere. And there was like an obvious body in the middle of the street that was covered. And she was like, holy shit. And then she and her husband were walking back to their apartment. And they noticed that police officers had entered their building. So this is just out on the street, right? And then police officers were actually walking in their building. And as they're going to their apartment, the police officers are still headed in the same direction and in the same direction and in the same direction until they stop at the door that's next to theirs. (gasps) And it turns out that the person on the street was the guy that had murdered a woman that was in this apartment and then had been like running from police and they shot him in the street, you know, because he was like wielding a knife or something. But I don't know. I was just literally like, I'm living in an actual true crime podcast, (laughs) but in real life, like moment. And it was so fun, but I'm just going to say it and we don't have to get into it too much. But the real crime this week is a crime against sovereignty of our bodies yeah. of our of our souls of our of our our right as human beings to just say hey i can do what i want to do with my personal body because i'm not hurting anybody else yeah you know it doesn't affect anybody else and the fact that you know 80% of this country disagrees with this decision just really makes me feel like we need to rethink lifetime appointments absolutely um, we need to rethink um I don't know. I think there is a way, actually, that we could technically amend things and may add more judges so that it's more fairly balanced. Yeah. <laughs> Although some people might just say, well, they'll just keep adding more people then. And I don't know. I, I was so angry. Yeah, me too. About it all that I decided to turn it off and watch the the movie we talked about yesterday, which turned out to be like the kind of perfect catharsis in terms of just like yeah. watching. Oh, the Beavis and, and Butthead movie? movie? No, the movie we oh, did on Dismembering sorry. Horror. That literally was the day I watched it. It was the middle of oh, the afternoon yeah. and I couldn't watch the news anymore. Um, and I turned on Vampire's Kiss and I was like, this is exactly yeah. what I need is to just laugh and be horrified and amused all at the you know expense of this dude at the center of this film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the real crime, uh, just don't stop fighting. We won't stop fighting, everyone. Yep. I agree. We'll I was, this I've been disgusted and upset and I all I'm echoing all of your sentiments and God help us. Let's just. Oh, yeah. Well, so if we're guarding somebody's body, <laughs> is that my you like my segue there? I love your segue. Today, um, I shall be inspiring Avrin Mackey's crime with the rom drum, The Bodyguard. Yes. And it's I- so good. Oh, my gosh. OK, so. Did you know that people, okay, it was in 1992 it came out, so we were I remember, young, I was 10 in 1992, yeah. and when this movie came out, I wanted to see it so bad, Ugh. and of course I was too young, I was 10, but I wanted to see it so bad because the soundtrack it's, was the only thing that played in my mother's car for like two years straight, Yeah, and so I felt like I, I needed to know the movie where these amazing songs were coming from, and my mom was like, sorry babe. You're just too, you're too little. Yeah, it's got a lot of big themes. Although watching it again, I'm like, we don't get too nasty. So I feel like you could have seen it. But then you would have been like, maybe obsessed with 
um, the bodyguard. I don't know, but also yeah. I they they did get so it's it was a hugely successful film, huge, crazily crazily successful soundtrack. Um, but uh, it did win some of those like Razzie awards for for uh, Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston for acting, and I just thought they I thought they did a great job. So I don't wait. Know. They won like those awards for sucking at acting. Yeah. In this movie? But they're so good in it. See, and I agree with you. But I just wanted to put that out there. It is, and rated our chemistry R. is so good. Okay, that is so fun, and I love that you said that. And I agree with you. Okay, so why don't we just go ahead and start with the trailer? Also, sorry guys for the trailer sound last week. I don't know what the hell was going on with that. You know, it, it's a multi-dimensional thing doing a podcast. So <laughs> that's right. We're we're doing the best we can. Frank Farmer to see Miss Marin. What? Alexander Graham Bell to see Miss Marin. Bill said he used to be with the Secret Service. I was two years with Carter, four with Reagan. Reagan got shot. Not on my ship. All my colors for you. You don't look like a bodyguard. This is my disguise. <laughs> well, his timing's good. Henry, I've spent a lot of time guarding people all over the world, and I found one thing to be true. No matter how incompetent the assassins, no matter how much they miss their target, there's one person who always gets hit. Who? The cocky black chauffeur. You afraid I might get picked off my snazzy round suit? No, I'm afraid that I'm gonna have to jog with you. Someone was in my house? Wait a minute, someone was in my house? Everybody's afraid of something. That's how we know we care about things. When we're afraid we're losing. How about you, Frank Farmer out there on the edge? Rachel, I don't want to get confused about what I'm doing here. I'm not confused. You pay me to protect you, that's what I do. And what is it? I'm afraid of not being there. So good. Bittersweet. I love it. <laughs> um, so I, I give I get a little chills. I lo- I I love that soundtrack so much. My There's, parents also, it is, we had that, we had the tape, y'all. We had tape in the gut. Yeah, it was the tape. Sorry, did I say a CD? Well, you I might have. Tape. I mean, it was 92. People had CDs, but I just remember the look of the tape, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the, the yeah. jacket. Oh, yeah, and you like read the songs yeah. and you know which side if and you, you want to listen to certain songs. And get like a, mm-hmm. a microscope so you could see what the the words were, which I love to yeah. do. Yep. Oh, see, I wasn't as smart as you. I would just... Listen to the song, rewind, listen to the song, rewind until I had it memorized. Which is probably the better way because then you actually memorize it. Did you know that there's a function on Spotify now? Because I do love to sing and I like to know the words, especially because my sister shamed me when I was young. She's like, I would just make up words if I didn't know them. She's like, that's not how it goes. And I was like, yeah, it is. No, it's not. But anyway, she was. But it's fine. She was a savant. She could just listen. And she was like you. She could listen once and then have the thing memorized. I was like, well, God damn it. I'm making up what I I'm I'm faking it anyways. But the, in, on Spotify, they have a little thing. Lyrics. You can press it and the lyrics come up. It's almost like karaoke. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's cute. So, just in case you something fun for you. OK, so here we go. 
We got, in her acting debut, Whitney Houston plays Rachel Marin, an Academy Award-nominated actress and music superstar who is being sent death threats by a stalker. God damn it. Like creepy, like they cut them out, all the letters and words from magazines and stuff and took a lot of time. Yeah. And maybe they're definitely insane. And And she's a megastar. We're talking... I would say maybe like a share type person we're, we're looking yeah, at Yeah, for there. sure. Huge ass house. She's got a maybe little- Maybe like a Madonna, you know, yes. like when she started doing the films as well. Mm-hmm, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But a share so, for sure. A bomb explodes in her dressing room and her manager is like, okay, this is absolutely crazy. We got to get some professional, like a professional bodyguard, which she does have security, but it just wasn't hacking it. So they- For her like family, right? Or her buddies Well, or yeah, it's this guy that he, he, he's, it's the same guy who played- Oh my god! Oh my god! I don't even know. It's the guy. He was. Um, he always plays a cop. He's a white guy, and I'm sorry for this. He's the one that in um, Dumb and Dumber he like dies because he eats all the hot peppers or hot tamales. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know who you're <laughs> okay, talking about. Sorry. <laughs> I can see his face. So, anyways, they go to this guy Frank Farmer, who was a former Secret Service agent who served during the Carter and Reagan presidencies to protect them. And Frank, he very reluctantly accepts the position, even though he feels that, like, Rachel is spoiled. She's oblivious to these threats. Like, she's just not even taking the threat seriously. So he's annoyed by that. He's like a serious dude. He's a very Kevin Costner doesn't ever smile kind of guy. Right, man of few words, but the words are harsh. And he knows (laughs) his stuff, you know? That's right. So Rachel, showing her spoiledness, spoiledness, even more accuses Frank of being paranoid and complains that his protection is just like it's intrusive to her, to her family, whatever. So and then, of course, the existing bodyguard that we were talking about, Tony, his name is, resents Frank being there. And they get into like a fight in the two in Rachel's kitchen. They're like, you know, two guys fighting for you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though with this tension, Rachel and Frank grow closer because he rescues her from a crazy dangerous moment after a riot erupts at one of her concerts. And that's shit scary in real life. Like pe- concerts can get out of hand. And pe- for sure, people, get, I mean, like, sp- people do and have died when like people rush the stage yes. and, you know, they get crushed and. Yep. Big, large crowds of people are terrifying. And now he's, now she's taking him seriously, and they get close. And though Frank tries to remain professional, he and Rachel <clears throat> do that. <laughs> no, they, they sleep together. Um, but the next day, he just comes to his senses, and he breaks the affair off because he's like, you know what, this, this is compromising my ability to protect you properly, so I just can't do it. But Rachel is pissed. She gets what she wants. She is Rachel Marin, a superstar. God damn it. Uh, she wants you, Frank. Yeah, but he, but so she's pissed, and so she's then she starts to kind of rebel a little and just defy some of his security measures that he puts in place, and then he then attempts to sleep with his former Secret Service colleague, some guy named Greg Portman, who she mm. met at, at like some Miami party. But hilarious. Then I know, like what? Then a stalker places a like does like one of those scary like I'm gonna kill you phone call, and Rachel seriously is like, okay, this is serious, and she decides, you know what? 
screw it. I trust you, Frank. You got me. I want to keep my child, not to mention she has an eight-year-old son, Fletcher, who she's trying to keep safe, too. By the way, her sister is her assistant, her secretary. I mean, like you Mm -hmm. said, it is all friends and family. Like, their driver is somebody, one of their buddies. Right. Um, And so... For for safety, Frank takes Rachel, her son Fletcher, and her sister Nikki, and the driver Henry, <laughs> to his <laughs> his dad's secluded cabin in the woods. And the next day, Frank, okay, so what happens is that you know there's like a little lake out there, and Fletcher loves boats. It's one of the first thing he says to um, Frank, Kevin Costner. He's like, "Do you like boats?" And Frank's like, "No, I don't." <laughs> and he's like, "Why?" He's like, "Well, I was stuck on one for four months." Um, that was uh, just his in- little intro there. But so he's on the boat. Fletcher's on the boat. But before anything bad happens, Frank, um, he rescues Fletcher from the small boater- motorboat right before it blows up. And like it and is a huge. Like, how does he know it's going to blow up? I like- can't remember. It was some things were some some he notices everything. Like, for example, when he first came to her compound, like the the intercom was sketchy, like. He just no- he notices all the little details. I think it had something to do with like electrical that he saw. I can't quite remember. I'm so sorry. But it oh, blows no, it's up. Okay, I just realized. I was like, I remember the boat blowing up like right after. And it was it crazy. Off, I was like, it is a big explosion, yeah. and it's a big moment. It's a catalyst yes. that will lead to a confession. Exactly. You know? Oh godness. Godness. Oh godness. <laughs> um. So you're right. After Frank secures the house for the night, Nikki, the sister, gets drunk, and she's very upset. She's crying. This this woman who plays the character. It was amazing. Her name is... You gotta love that I didn't... Um... Okay, so I'm gonna do this because I feel like we need to know. I feel bad. I'm like, I don't care about Tony the bodyguard, but this this girl who plays... Uh... Her sister, Nikki. Oh, my God. her She is pretty amazing actor, so I want to get it right and give her her, her just desserts. <laughs> I'm in my closet, by the way, right now. That's why... Um... That's I think my internet's a little bit slow. I don't really need to look very much. Mm-hmm. That's oh for fuck's sake. I guess I'll just I'm looking it up too. <laughs> Try to help you out. Here it is. Michelle Lamar Richards. That's it. Michelle Lamar Richards. And to put a button in it, it's Mike Starr who plays Tony. Um There we go. There we look at we did sorry, it. We Tony. did it. Yeah, I'm really sorry, Tony. But this girl, she's giving this oh my god, this confession. She okay, so she says that she <laughs> she's and she's like she's losing her shit right now because Fletcher almost died. She admits to Frank that she hired a hitman to kill Rachel when she was having like when she was feeling really jealous. Um and was drunk, right, in a bar. Yeah. And she, but she also like I'm sure she gets kind of abused by her sister too because her sister was like go get this man orange juice you know she's like kind of bossing her around right and also like the backstory here is that Rachel was not the lead singer in the family or the, like the band or whatever right. it was Nikki and then Rachel showed up and just eclipsed like was clearly I mean, she's Whitney Houston I yeah. mean her talent is beyond it, it eclipses most all people's talent um but you know so she kind of snatched not in, on purpose but yeah. she was the talented one even though Nikki wanted it too. Yeah. By the way I'm looking at IMDb right now and the guy the kid who played Fletcher his name's Devon Nixon. He's a pretty adult. I'll tell you that much. He's a mm. very pretty adult. 
Good for him. He's working. He's working in the acting biz. Proud of it. Okay, so so she's like she's she she admits to him she was jealous. She got a she got she paid and, and this is the fun fact. She's like I paid him in full, and she doesn't know what he looks like. So he's paid. It's happening, and they are f- fucked. Um, that night, the hitman breaks in breaks into the cabin and shoots Nikki, like killing her, thinking it's it's Rachel. And then Frank run, rushes after the killer into the woods, shoots after him, but the fucker gets away. Then Frank finds out that the stalker had been caught earlier that day and was in custody when Nikki was murdered. So it wasn't the stalker. It was the hitman. So we're, Oh, so there's like two people threatening her. Yeah, it was a stalker. There's a stalker, and a stalker sending the creepy notes. Yeah. And then her sister had hired a hitman. Yeah. Um, so then, let's see, Frank gives Rachel a panic button in the shape of a cross to alert him if she feels unsafe. But goddammit, tech issues make it difficult for Frank to monitor Rachel at the concert. And he is it's freaking the Oscars, out. It's Oscars, right? Oh, yeah, yes, this is the Oscars, sorry, yes. And so he's losing his shit, he's worrying, worrying, he's freaking out. He, like, he, like, comes out and tries to help her, and she's like, you're embarrassing me, get away. But then, um, let's see, Frank being the top... Uh, oh, okay. Later, Rachel Rachel is announced the winner as best actress, which is huge. Um, but as she comes on stage to accept the award, the douche canoe who she was flirting with in Miami is revealed to be the hitman masquerading as the bodyguard for the cer- ceremony's host. So this is crazy. This is some guy that actually Frank had worked with before, and he went to the bad side, and now he's mm-hmm. a hitman. I guess security guard or bodyguard hitman is it's a easy. I guess you make more maybe if you I probably hit, hit man instead of guard bodies yeah. and kill bodies, it's which is unfortunate. Sad. That should not be the way the world works. Exactly. But guess what? Frank being the top-notch bodyguard that he is, he notices the guy pointing a gun disguised as a camera at Rachel. And as this guy is about to shoot, Frank runs on stage and jump in front of Rachel, taking the bullet that was meant for her. But quickly regaining his balance, even though he is still shot, Frank shoots and kills the hitman right before he's about to take a second shot and shoot Rachel. The next day, at the airport, we find out that Frank did survive. It is just a shoulder wound, but it is time for... (laughs) Sorry, excuse me. I, like, swallowed my iced coffee wrong. I've been back (laughs) here, like, trying to stifle, like, (coughs) a cough that's, like, wrong pipe cough. Frank is alive. That's where we're at. My apologies for my random... I mean, I feel like, Avern, I feel like my life, every time I go into a store, I just, I get like, my throat gets dry and I get a cough and I'm like, oh my God, I need to cough like so bad in this store. And now I'm like, embarrassed. Now you can't cough anywhere. I know. I'm even on a podcast. I'm alone in a shut, like (laughs) locked room. And I'm like, they're all going to judge me if I cough on this podcast. There's no judgment here. I love it. No. Okay. So he survives. They're at the airport and they're out on the, um, Tamara. What's it called? Tarmac. Tarmac. I almost said Tarmac. They're on the tarmac. She and her family are going into their private jet. And he comes out to say goodbye. And they have a moment where they hug. But they both know that their relationship would never really work out. And the plane takes off and is running down the runway. And Rachel suddenly orders the plane to stop. And she jumps out and runs to Frank for one last deep-throated passionate kiss. (laughs) It's awesome. Yeah, and then we cut to a performance where Rachel, Whitney Houston, performs I Will Always Love You on a stage. And, my God, this rendition is just the best. And meanwhile, we, with this song playing, we see Frank back at work 
with his next assignment, keeping a vigilant eye. And it's a priest holding a cross, very similar to the one that he gave Rachel. And that's the end of the movie, but I have some fun facts if you want to hear fun facts. I want all the fun facts. Okay, so... um, so, so I've, I'm excited. I hope that really um, inspired your story. I was so, when you mentioned this, I, my brain started just like whirling where I was like, yeah. ooh, there's so many ways to go. And I ended up, well, we'll get to that. You tell me well, I just, And right. that's why I want to say, I'm, I'm, so we're still on track to get to the to crime, but I just, this kind of stuff is like um, these fun this little, like a, yeah. yeah. This is a movie that's like part of our zeitgeist. Exactly. Like everyone knows this movie or they know the soundtrack to this movie. Mm-hmm. So why not? Tell us some stuff we don't know. Right. So, well, we I, we mentioned, but it was still to this day the biggest selling uh, soundtrack of all time. Wow! Which is to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, the script originally was supposed to be a vehicle for Diana Ross and Steve McQueen, but uh, you know it just didn't get off the ground. Oh, in this is sad. In a creepy life imitates uh, reality. Whitney actually also had a stalker and received death threats in her life. Oh man! I know. I think it's really did they catch him? Hard being. I didn't get that far in the, my research. <laughs> I love that you're like I want the true crime. Giving the what happened. Right. I'm like I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then Costner chose. Um, he chose that song at the end because he was a big country fan. I thought that was fascinating. I feel like I read somewhere that the first time Dolly Parton heard the Whitney Houston's version of it, she was like driving in her car. Oh really? And like lost her mind and like pull over and was like this is the greatest thing I've ever heard (laughs) well I have some fun interesting on that note I guess in 1974 Elvis Presley wanted to cover the song but because his manager demanded that she grant Elvis half the publishing rights she refused Dolly Parton was like "Mm -mm, sorry and sorry Elvis I guess she said she was heartbroken about having to turn down the king he would have killed it she said but then Whitney Houston's version came out and she says I made enough money to buy Graceland honey (laughs) Uh-huh. Also, do you know she wrote I Will Always Love You and Jolene on the same day? Oh, my God. Are you serious? Like, she just pounded those brilliant, wow. like, forever awesome songs. That's amazing. Back to back. It's amazing. Okay, what else? Dolly Parton, have? we love you. You're so good. I, oh, She's oh. so good. She's so good. Um, director Mick, ja- Mick Jackson, um, his initial cut of the film displayed few... Okay, so I think this is interesting. I really thought they had a lot of chemistry, too, but apparently their initial cut... Um, there were not a lot of romantic sparks between the two leads. Uh, they looked like a couple of pals passing the time of the day instead of the torrid lovers they were supposed to be. But Costner, mm. who had final cut rights, kept his word that he wouldn't let Houston look bad. He oversaw an edit that trimmed her dialogue and gave her more close-ups. And that did the trick, I guess. I don't know nice. if that's true or what. So, and then what? I have a couple more. Costner claimed in 2012 that he'd been developing a bodyguard sequel that would have marked Princess Diana's acting debut in a semi-autobiographical role and that her tragic death in 1997 came within days after he'd received an early draft of the script. So he was, yeah. Oh, my God. I know. They were going to do a bodyguard, too, with Princess Diana yeah. in the movie? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Can you that's wild. Imagine? Um, and then to close this out, I... At, Whitney Houston's funeral in 2012, Costner gave a eulogy saying of her bodyguard performance, you made the picture what it was. A lot of leading men could have played my part. A lot of guys could have filled that role. But you, Whitney, I truly believe that you were the only one that could have played Rachel Marin at the time. And I agree. Aww. I mean, she's amazing. Her, I mean, he, yeah. No. She's so good. I can't think of anybody else playing that role. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there you or, go. Or singing any of those songs. Exactly. I mean, My she just God, filled. She's just it, 
true artist, right? Like filled yeah. in the in the blanks where it needed to be so full, and it was so good. Yeah, the bodyguard. Everybody. So wonderful. Oh my gosh, I wanna I wanna put that soundtrack on like a spot. Me too. Me too. And just go drive around and pretend I'm ten years old again. Yeah, me too. All right. So for our true crime portion of the Yay! show, obviously. My first thought when you mentioned that you wanted to do The Bodyguard was um, that I should do Selena. Right. But then I was like, I feel like I, f- I feel like it's a, such a big story, you know, and it is about a, a really important pop singer. But she was like on the verge of becoming, you know, probably like a Rachel or a Whitney. Right. Um, she was. Before she was, you know, murdered by the president of her fan club. But then I was like, but there's no protection angle or like stalker right. threats that they knew about angle. <clears throat> so the only angle is like superstar. And so I was like, let me keep digging. I can always I can always have Selena as like this would definitely work, you know, like a, a beautiful, incredible, talented singer being taken out by a fan, basically. Um, and so I just typed in. Uh, I looked at a sisters who hired hitman for sister another sister i didn't find anything there so then i just typed in like bodyguard murder and i i came across something Mm. and i'm gonna tell you the story of the coleman family so the coleman family uh is made up of chris sherry and their two sons garrett and gavin And church had always been at the center of Chris Coleman's life. His parents were co-pastors of the Grace Church, which was an evangelical Christian church in Illinois. So serious evangelical Christians, that's, they don't mess around. Um, He was a quiet kid who took his faith very seriously. Now, after high school, Chris joined the Marines. In the Marines, I kind of love this. He was a canine handler. Ooh, I want to do that. Like, he was like the handsome young Marine that, like, Worked with the dogs, that, and I just love dogs. So I'm like, if I I see it, like you know a, ma- a man in uniform, like with a cute, I don't know, it all was working. When yeah, I was watching stuff about this, and it was at a canine training seminar that he met Sherry Weiss, and clearly this vision of him in uniform with these dogs also did it for Sherry because <laughs> the two um, immediately began dating and they fell in love. Now Sherry was an MP, which stands for Military Police in the Air Force, so they're both, you know, like serving their country they meet at this canine training training seminar they they quickly fall in love they're dating and uh he brings sherry home to meet his parents the the co-pastors the evangelical christians so he brings her home and uh, his parents uh, they don't seem all that thrilled by sherry um she's basically a lax catholic as far as religion goes so she's technically catholic but not really practicing and they see uh Chris is like their golden boy and they're like she's moving in on our son like this non-Christian or this you know lax Catholic girl and they they didn't really like her that much Mm -hmm. Um, and so they were really really surprised after they you know he brings her over for dinner they're going to go to Chicago you know for the weekend and the next day they call Chris calls his parents and he's like guess what Sherry and I just got married. So they like drove to Chicago, went to the courthouse and uh, got married. And it turns out, you see, Sherry was pregnant. Oops. And uh, being the good Christian boy that he was, Chris was, he wanted to do the right thing by her. He loved her. Um, 
but he also wanted to do the right thing by her. And I guess would also deal with like feelings of guilt that he that he let this happen, that he actually did like have sex before marriage. That was like something he kind of he does. There's lots of guilt, mm. I think, sometimes in certain. Oh, yeah. Huh. People that are like raised in religious households where it's like the center of everything. Yeah. You know, there's guilt is a big part of, you know, of what why how religion kind of helps keep you on the right path, so to speak. So you got to feel real shitty about normal things yeah. like wanting to have sex with your your partner who's like your partner just maybe not legally um <clears throat> but anyway this did not endear sherry <laughs> to his parents I'm they sure. didn't like this they were like we already didn't think she was anything special and not good enough for our son and now she's trapped him by getting pregnant and it's like no it takes two people to yeah. make a baby <laughs> um that just kind of gives you like i think a general idea of you know just like the family dynamic on his side right where it's like she loves him so much they just got married they're having a baby she wants them to like her so much that she actually converts she like ex you know leaves the catholic church and is baptized into the evangelical christian church is born again and she does all of that just so they'll like her and it works okay they warm up to sherry they warm up to sherry so when Chris's uh, time in the military came to an end, uh, he was hired to be on the security team at Joyce Myers Ministries. Now, apparently, if you're somebody who was raised in the evangelical church, you definitely would know who this woman was. I personally was like, I have no idea who that is. But she was a really famous televangelist. Oh. And uh, she was both popular and polarizing. Now, many evangelical Christians were very uncomfortable with a woman at the pulpit, especially a brash, tell-it-like-it-is woman like Joyce. But just as many others loved her and her no-nonsense authenticity, and she at the time that Chris was hired, Joyce was a multi-millionaire who traveled the world spreading her message, and the message of, you know, God and all that stuff, <clears throat> and Christ and all those things. Now, how did Chris get a job like this with this super famous, fancy, really important televangelist? Well, it turns out Chris's parents were old friends of Joyce's because, you know, they're also like ministers. So they knew her. She'd actually known Joyce had known Chris since he was a little boy. And so between the fact that she knows him and likes his family and he has this military background, it kind of made him the perfect fit for her security team, right? Oh, yeah. So Chris, Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett, they moved to Columbia, Illinois, which is a suburb that is across the river from St. Louis, Missouri, which is where the Joyce Meyer Ministries like headquarters was. Now, he worked um, on her security team for several years. And then in 2007, he was promoted to head of security and became Joyce Meyer's personal bodyguard. Oh. So he not only is like the leader of her securities team and like what they all need to be doing, but it's him who travels with her now and has to protect her if anything happens and has to like, you know, be the Frank. Mm-hmm. So this means that when, yeah, Joyce travels, Chris travels, and she traveled a lot. As I mentioned, she was going all over the world. She would give like 30 some odd, conf- like, you know, conferences a year. She was... She was a bit, she was a jet-setting um, televangelist. Anyway, um, this promotion, however, came with a 50% raise, though, okay? So he's now making over $100,000, which was twice what he was wow. making when he was just a regular member of the security team. So this at least allows Sherry can, or yeah, Sherry can stay home and be with the kids. She doesn't have to work. 
because he's making so much money now. Okie dokie. Now, some people did notice around this time that he got this promotion that something about being in this position of power, like being the leader of the security team and the personal bodyguard of this very, very famous, well-known, especially in his circles, um, televangelist, gave him a little bit of like a, an attitude. Like he shaved his head and he was like, it makes me look tough. You know, he, was, he just kind of seemed to be like, it seemed to like add some swagger to him. But he was like, he's acting a little cockier than he'd ever been before. Like he was always like a real, you know, kind of quiet, con- conscientious, gentlemanly gentleman. And now he's a little bit yeah. looser, I guess. He's feeling himself a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So as I mentioned before, Joyce was controversial and needed a personal bodyguard. So threats against her were not unusual. If she never received threats, she wouldn't need a personal bodyguard. But threats against her bodyguard were unheard of until November 14th, 2008, when an email was sent to a member of Joyce's security team with the subject line that read Houston Death. And it was sent from an email address that was destroychris at gmail.com. And it read, this is what the message read. And also there's lots of cuss words coming up just I know we swear on this all the time, but there is a lot in these notes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Tell Chris his family is dead. I know his schedule and they will die. Next time that motherfucker will let me talk to Joyce. (gasps) So that comes through. Then a few hours later, I'm guessing because there's no response, uh, another email comes through. But this time it's not just sent to one member. It's sent to like several members of staff at Joyce Myers Ministries, including Joyce and Chris now has been like copied. And let me find this one so I can read it for you. Okay, so this one is titled, Fuck Chris's Family, They Are Dead, with three exclamation points. I'm sure this will make it to someone in the company. If you jackasses are like any other company, this will be someone's account, because you know, it's like at thecompany.com. Pass this on to Chris. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and kids. (gasps) I know Joyce's schedule, so then I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will die. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all as they sleep. If I don't hit there, then I will kill them during the book tour or the trip to India. I know where he lives, and I know they are alone. Fuck them all and they will die soon. Yeah. Tell that motherfucker next time to let me talk to Joyce. She needs to hear what I have to say and now she will. So <clears throat> these are interesting, right? Because they're clearly kind of suggesting that this person is pissed at Chris because he prevented them from getting to Joyce in some way. Yeah, that's But what they're it not, seems. they want, so they want to talk to Joyce, but they're not threatening Joyce. They are really, they're threatening his wife and children. Like we're going to kill Chris's wife and kids because... You won't let me, you know, talk to Joyce and also tell her to stop spouting her bullshit. Okay. So the the emails were scary, right? Especially when the following day, another one came through. And this one was, uh, the subject line was, fuck you all. (laughs) I know you all got my fucking email. You think I'm full of shit? Just wait. I will shoot their asses with my 40. Kill them all. I am so sick of bitches like her taking everyone's cash so she can fly her jet and sorry, they're, and pamper her white ass. Fuck you all. Tell Chris I will kill them. He has no um, idea when, but it will happen. I'm sure you motherfuckers are going to try putting your pussy ass security team at the house or police, whatever. I kill them. Then I am coming after Chris. Then you, Danny. Then David. I may not be able to get to Joyce, but I'll get the rest of you Ooh. motherfuckers. Fuck you all. 
I know when you read these. Um, I know when you read these. Oh, interesting. Just wait. You will see. Fuck you all again. Uh, tell that bitch Joyce to give my money back and talk to me and this will all stop. Until then, everyone will die, starting with Chris's wife and kids. I know his fucking schedule. Every time Joyce is gone, he is gone. You motherfuckers are probably wondering how I got your emails, you stupid fucks. Just like every company. So fucking predictable. Dumbasses. And that's how that ends. <laughs> so it's... Right, so it's like interesting. It yeah. doesn't... It's, you know, it's very... Um, like I mentioned, like ex- expletive laced. <laughs> very, uh, very angry. Uh, but definitely, like, the violence is clearly Chris is the target, and more specifically, his family is the target. But it, even though they were scary, you know, there's, there's, it's their, do- like, job to deal with these kinds of things, right? Um, but in uh, January of 2009, Chris finally gets the police involved because the next threat didn't come in an email. It came in the mailbox at his family's house. And the letter wasn't in an envelope or postmarked. It had simply been placed in the mailbox, meaning the person threatening his family had been to his house. Oh, God. So he's like, uh, all right, we're getting law enforcement involved. So he files a police report, hands over the emails and the, the, the typed out note that was in the mailbox. And so police are on it. And, you know, they're going to do what they can do. But here's what this note said, making sure I do the right one because I didn't. I didn't, like, send them to myself in the right order. Mm. Okay, so this is the first one that was placed in the mailbox. It says, fuck you, exclamation point. Deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. Have a good time in India, motherfucker. Now, this is important. In this this note, opportunities is spelled incorrectly. It's spelled O-P-P-U-R. Instead of O-R, uh-huh. like opera, yeah, like opportunity. So it's misspelled. That'll come back later. Okay. And then, as I mentioned, he gets police involved. And after that, it kind of quiets down, right? So this is January. And nothing else happens until April 27th. So that's quite a while, right? That's January to April's, what, four months? Yeah. So quite a while, no action. But then on April 27th, another note is left in the mailbox, meaning that another, you know, the person has now been back to their home. So let me read uh, this one. <clears throat> Clear my throat. Fuck you. <laughs> of course, that's how it starts. I'm giving you the last warning. You have not listened to me and you have not changed your ways. I have warned you to stop traveling and to stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. You think you're so special to do what you do, protecting or think you are protecting her? She is a bitch and not worth you doing it. Stop today or else. I know your schedule. You can't hide from me ever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning and I know when you stay home. I saw you leave this morning. I will be watching. You better stop traveling and doing what you're doing. And then in all caps, this is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. Okay. Right? Like these are really, really scary letters. So again, Chris contacts police and actually reaches out. So right across the street from Chris and Sherry's house lived a detective. Like he just happened to be a neighbor who lived across the street and his name was Detective Justin Barlow. So he reaches out, files another report, but he also like tells it over to his neighbor and he kind of explains the situation. Um, And Detective Barlow is like, well, hey, listen, my kid's room faces like directly like towards your mailbox. If you want, I can set up a camera. Great. 
and we can maybe catch this guy. Because Chris, as being a securities guy, had a camera, but like the type of system he had, there was no way to download the uh. video and like save it. And when he and Sherry watched it, they also couldn't, you couldn't see their face. So this is like a better angle. So he, Chris is like, yes, please do that. Yeah. And uh, the Detective Barlow sets, uh, or sorry, borrows cameras, like police surveillance equipment. So good stuff. Yeah. Not like, you know, Radio Shack stuff. And he places a camera in the window of his three-year-old son's bedroom, which faces, as I mentioned, <clears throat> directly where the person would be dropping these notes off. But no more threats were delivered, which is going to bring us to the evening of May 4th of 2009. That surveillance camera that never did spot anyone leaving threatening messages uh, did, in fact, catch a really sweet image of Chris, Gavin, and Garrett playing touch football on their front in their front yard in the afternoon. And then later on that day, Garrett and Gavin went to a neighborhood friend's house to play. And the friends uh, and his mom invited them to spend the night for a slumber party. It was one of their, like, the, I think the neighbor's birthday the next day. And she was like, you guys should spend the night, have a sleepover. And they were like, yay. And so there, she's like, just go home, get your stuff for school in the morning, tell your parents, and we'll have a fun night. So the boys went home to get their stuff. But when uh, Garrett returned to the neighbor's house, he, you know, he looked real bummed and his shoulders were all hunched. And he said <clears throat> that they couldn't spend the night, maybe next week, but their, their, his parents had said, no, not tonight. And then Garrett went home. The following morning, Chris woke up at 5.30 a.m., got dressed, and headed for the gym around 5.40. Him leaving for the gym was also caught on Detective Barlow's camera. While at the gym, Chris called Sherry to wake her up so that she could get, um, so she could get up and start getting the boys up and ready for school. But she didn't answer the phone. So he called again, and she didn't answer again. And then he was like, okay, maybe she already got up and she's in the shower. So he waited a little bit, and then he called again. No answer. So this time he calls his neighbor and friend, Detective Barlow. He's like, hey, I'm at the gym. I'm getting ready to head home, but will you please go check? I can't get a hold of Sherry. They should definitely be awake right now. And I'm just freaking out because, you know, threats. They've yeah. been getting some threats. So, of course, the detective's like, sure, yeah. And he's like, okay, I'm on my way home. I should be home in like, you know, five to ten minutes. Detective Barlow basically calls it in. He's like, hey, I'm going to do a welfare check, but you need to send an additional officer over. Grabs his gun, his badge, heads across the street. And then when the other officer arrives just a few minutes later, Detective Barlow is standing on the porch, turns to the officer, says, I've, been, I've rang the doorbell several times. There's no answer. So the two of them begin to walk the perimeter oh, of the house. No. And when they are walking the perimeter, they come upon an open basement window with the screen popped out and like leaning against the house. So they're like, oh, okay, this is open. Someone has removed the screen. We can get in this way at least to check. And also this looks not great. Uh, so they enter through the window. They climb the basement steps to the first floor of the house. And the first thing they notice is the overwhelming stench of paint. Oh. Like fresh paint, like you know how strong that smell is. Uh -huh. They smell paint, they turn the corner into the hallway, and it's like something out of Helter Skelter. On the walls, in like blood red spray paint, are all of these like crazy messages like punished, you have paid, <clears throat> like, you know, I told you I was going to get you type stuff. Aye, aye, so aye. now they're seeing these messages and that this is bad. Like someone's clearly entered the house and spray painted, you know, threatening and disturbing, like you paid, punished. You know, uh -oh. and it's all like bleeding down mm. the walls. Uh, so basically they call in for reinforcements. And then at the same time, Chris gets home. So Detective Barlow runs out and he's like, you need to stay out here. You got to stay outside. And Chris is like, OK. So they head up to the second floor and that's where they find 
Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin. And they are all dead oh, no. in their beds. Yeah. They'd all been strangled and it appeared to be with like some kind of rope or cord because of the ligature marks. Now the boys had no like defensive wounds. So either somehow they, they didn't wake up or whatever happened, they, they didn't fight back in any way. But sh- not so was Sherry. She had clearly fought hard. She had black, both black eyes. Oh, my God. And, like, scrapes. You know, like, she had been fighting for her life. (gasps) And so uh, Detective Barlow has to head down the stairs and outside to where his neighbor is waiting on the front lawn. And he has to tell Chris, your family didn't make it. And Chris fell to the ground and began to cry. And uh, one of the EMTs that had arrived on the scene became concerned because he was, like, in the fetal position on the grass, like, sobbing. And he's like, oh. I feel like you might be in shock. Like, why don't you come back here, back of the ambulance? We could just kind of monitor you, you know, don't have a panic attack. We could, like, give you some oxygen. So he comes in, um, sits in the back of the ambulance with the paramedic. And it's here that the, the EMT notices that Chris's hands are kind of, like, swollen and red. And he has scratches on his forearms. <sighs> and so the EMT asks him, he's like, how did you get those cuts and bruises? And instead of answering the EMT, Chris begins violently punching the gurney that's in the back of the ambulance, basically exacerbating the scratches and bruises that were already there, but like making them much worse by like just beating on this thing as hard as he can. At this point, there are two dozen police officers are now at the scene and um, the medical examiner has arrived. And uh, the medical examiner notes that the bodies are cold and rigor mortis is already starting to set in. Now, Chris is taken to the police station to give a statement and be interviewed because, as we know, in a murder investigation, the husband's always going to be looked at first if his wife and kids are, are killed. That, that's just, you have to start there. That's the closest person to these people, so you start there. So that does not necessarily say anything, but Chris isn't, he's, he's not doing himself any favors here in the police station. When they get into the interview room, he tells detectives that he's cold. Now, this immediately strikes both detectives as odd because the room is noticeably warm, like kind of uncomfortably warm. But okay, they get him a blanket. But then when he gets the blanket, he doesn't like wrap it around his shoulders or drape it over his legs. He like drapes it over his forearms, like in an effort to hide the scratches and bruises that are there. Oh, no. Then they ask him about those scratches and bruises. And he's like, oh, I got upset in the ambulance and I punched the the gurney and I injured myself. Oh, and some of these scratches were from when I was I was cleaning some stuff off the, the gutters on my roof. You know, and they're like, I'm the EMT. I mean, they don't say this to him, but they know. Yeah. They're, the EMT knows those were already there before you punched that gurney. So that's not going to work as why you have those. So police then ask Chris to tell them about the previous evening, and he tells them the night was totally normal. They had dinner as a family. They put the boys to bed. He and uh, Sherry watched a movie together, and then they went upstairs, brushed their teeth together, and went to bed. It was a normal, wonderful evening. As far as their marriage, awesome. That's his answer. Our marriage was awesome. Now, things had been rough. They had gone through kind of a a rough patch, and the divorce, the, the, the D word, had actually been tossed around as a possibility at one point. But he went to Joyce, his boss, and explained, like, we're having marital problems. And she said, would you guys be willing to seek counseling? And they both agreed to counseling. And they went to a counselor that Joyce sent them to within the ministry. And he said that ever since, ever since then, everything had been great. And they've been working on their marriage. And shit was awesome. That's what he says. So then police ask him the next question you have to ask. And they're like, okay, well, is, um, have you been having any kind of, like, an affair 
outside of your marriage? Or perhaps Sherry was, is there somebody outside the marriage that maybe would have wanted to hurt them? You know, have you been unfaithful? And he's like, no, absolutely not. Um, But I do have this female friend that I'm super tight with. And you could, you might want to like talk, reach out to her and talk to her. And they're like, what do you mean? Like a female friend, like a, like a, someone you're having an affair with? He's like, no, just a good friend. We're just really good friends. He's, they're like, so your wife, you'd be cool with your wife seeing all the messages you guys sent? And he's like, well, maybe not all of them, but like, you know, we're just friends. And the cops are like, uh, okay. And then one of the detectives runs out, calls the St. Petersburg, Florida police department. It's like, we need to, you to go find Tara Lentz and um, question her regarding her relationship to Chris Coleman. Craziness. It's just crazy. I already just that statement of like, I'm definitely not having an affair, but I do have a female friend that I talk to a lot and maybe you guys should talk to her. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't really work like to fit those two things in, in the same in the same sentence. So police in Florida track down Tara and when they start speaking to her, it's very clear that what Chris has said is a, is a lie. Like the officer who's talking to her is immediately positive like this is his girlfriend oh my god it's really obvious and then tara actually confirms that right uh she tells the police that she and chris are in love they have been in a relationship since you know like november or december of the year before of 2008 um and that actually he was supposed to serve sherry with divorce papers today until all of this horrible stuff happened Oh, my God. She then showed them uh, the promise ring he had given her and uh, pictures on the phone, like hundreds and hundreds of pictures of them together and like sexy pictures they'd sent each other. And so uh, St. Petersburg po- uh, police, they actually take her, black, like, confiscate it and say, like, we need to hold on to this as evidence in a murder situation. So they take her computer and her phone and then they call back the detectives in Illinois and they're like, uh, <clears throat> yeah, this woman says they're like engaged to be married. He was supposed to, you know, just leave his wife today or served something like that. So now they they hit Chris with this. Like, okay, bud, so we've caught you in a couple lies here today, which is very upsetting and concerning for us. We're just trying to get to the truth of what happened to your family. And at this point, Chris is like, should I get a lawyer? They say, if you want to. Now, this is this is not a formal interrogation. This is an interview. But if you are welcome to an attorney. And if you want one, we'll stop right now until you get one. And Chris is like, no, it's okay. And then police come at him with the biggest flaw in his story. So remember I mentioned the medical examiner noted the bodies were cold and rigor mortis had begun to set in? Yes, Well, what that tells a medical examiner who's an expert in this field is that uh, Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett had been dead for several hours. And they put their approximate time of death between 3 and 4 a.m., which would be hours before Chris left for the gym. Police tell Chris they know his wife and kids were already dead when he left the house that morning. And he says, no, they weren't. And they say again, Sherry was dead before you left this morning. And Chris is like, no, she was lying right next to me. And I mean, I think she was alive. That's what he says. I think she was alive. And then he goes on, I believe she was. So technically all of this, which is damning, right? All of this, but it's circumstantial and none of it is strong enough, I guess, to hold him. So after six hours, they release Chris. Because they can't, they don't have anything they can hold them on. But they can execute some search warrants with all of this circumstantial evidence. And so they get a search warrant. And when they go to the house and they go through Chris's computer and Sherry's cell phone, they hit the jackpot. So this was not in any way, shape, or form a happy marriage and had not been for some time. In text messages to her friends, Sherry says that 
Chris wants a divorce. Like, text a friend. Like, Chris told me he wants a divorce. There's another one where she texts a friend. He said that me and my kids are ruining his career. I don't know how, but he said that, and she said that to her friend. She also confided in friends that Chris was having an affair with Tara Lintz, which really pissed her off because Tara was a woman Sherry had introduced Chris to on a family vacation to Florida because guess what? To make it even worse, Tara was Sherry's high school best friend. Oh like they were God. high school best friends. Sherry and Chris and the boys went on a trip to Florida for vacation. She called her old bestie, had her come meet her family. Oh. And uh, then Chris and, and Tara started hooking up. Which I just was like, holy shit, like this already sucks so bad. And now there's just this added element of like this, the woman is like somebody who, who knew her so well. I just don't understand people sometimes. Yeah. Um, other messages read um, that she, and this is Sherry, was not going to give, like she wasn't going to divorce Chris no matter how nasty he was to her. You know, like she wasn't going to divorce him so that he can say like, I was, she left me, you know, right. you're like you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to admit that. You cheated on me and you want a divorce. Um, and then at some point she did tell a friend, if anything happens to me, Chris did it. Now, oh. here's here's something that I just want to say, because I, I think in these family annihilator situations, we hear that a lot, yeah. except for when we don't. And then it's even more shocking, like you have no idea. Yeah. But if you have to tell someone, if anything happened to me, this is who did it, then you need to immediately exit yeah, remove the vicinity yourself. of that yeah. someone and you need to get help and you need to get like protection. And I know that's so it's much not, easier yeah. said than yeah. done. I know how hard that is. But if you have to say those words, your life is in danger. Like no one under any normal circumstances would need to say, if something happens to me, this is who did it. Unless you know that there's the possibility of violence. It just makes me so sad. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, now on Chris's computer. All right. So that's just what they found on Sherry's cell phone. So proof of an unhappy marriage and affair and a refusal to divorce him. So like kind of putting up a fight and not and not being willing to instigate divorce proceedings. And then on Chris's computer, police uncover tons, and by the tons, I mean like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sexual and pornographic photos and videos of Chris and Tara. They also found a document that Chris had written on his computer that like said, it starts with like the day Tara changed my life, November fifth, two thousand eight, and then it's basically just a list about of everything about her, everything she likes, mm. uh, the like the date of her pet's birthday, uh, her favorite like sports team, her ring size, her shoe size, her lingerie size, uh, oh. every everything you could think of about her, and including at the bottom the name they've already decided to name their first baby if it's a girl. And the name is Zoe. But even more incriminating, Vanya, and I know you're like, what gets more incriminating no, yeah. than all of this, is that as police are combing through his computer for evidence, they are able to trace the creation of an email address yeah. that is destroychris at gmail.com to his very computer. So Chris created that account, and then they're able to trace all of the threatening emails and all of the like typed out notes that were left in the mailbox to this computer. So then I wrote, the emails were coming from inside the house. <laughs> That's crazy. So they also collect, it's wild, right? So in this search, they also collect several work documents, like just regular old work documents where it's noticed 
that in every one of them over going back almost 10 years, Chris always spells opportunities incorrectly. And it's the U-R. Mm. So he's finally arrested and charged with three counts of first degree murder because as the prosecutor sees this, this is premeditated, planned yeah. killing of his entire family that he planned for months. And this is the theory they lay out for the jury. On November 5th, 2008, Chris wrote down that Tara had changed his life. Now, whether or not, we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe that was the day she accepted his promise ring and said, yes, I'll totally marry you once you leave your wife. But we do know that uh, after that, he hatched this plan to send these threatening emails and notes. And those began just nine days later on November 14th. Now, you might ask, why murder your family? Why not just leave your family? Like, if she won't divorce you, divorce her leave do your thing yeah why must why would anybody ever do this to their like sweet babies and the woman who bore their children no matter what other thing yeah. you feel for her at this point uh because he didn't want to lose his real cushy high-paying job now you may say huh yeah but you have to remember chris worked for joyce meyers ministries which was an evangelical christian organization that would probably not continue to employ an adulterous divorcee like somebody who stepped outside of his marriage and then left his family for the person that he cheated on his wife with. And in fact, in a deposition, uh, Joyce Meyer said, you know, if somebody gets divorced, that that's not in within their control. We would never fire somebody if their spouse divorced them. Right. Uh, but if we found out that you were cheating on your spouse and then left your spouse, yeah, we, we would terminate you. She actually said, so that's a that's them proving like this is his fear, right? And also kind of explains that like I'm not gonna give him the divorce. He's gonna have to do it. Yeah. Like she that Sherry maybe like knew what the story was here. And she's like, No, I wanna fight for this marriage. So if you wanna leave me, you're gonna literally risk it all with the with your job because I'm not gonna grant you that divorce. And so this is the motive, they say, and also proof of premeditation. And so they're saying what he did is he decided he had to basically get rid of his whole family so that he could have this brand new awesome life with Tara. But he also had to do it in a way that would like garner him tons of sympathy, you know, and like people would feel so bad for him with this tragic loss of his whole family. And they'd be thrilled that he found love again. And like, they go on and on and on. Now the defense, not really that great in terms of like what they brought up uh they specifically argue that time of death can never be exactly determined even bringing in their own expert that said it's possible that the time of death for the for the three coleman's could have been as late as 5 47 a.m to which we all say collectively yes but he left at like 5 40 and i just don't think that in seven minutes Mm-mm. this happened plus on the the security footage you know from across the street that was constantly capturing stuff the only person who leaves that house is Chris. Right. You know, like they never see anyone else coming or going. Then they point out, now if Chris did this, the paint, the paint. How oh, come yes. there was not a single fleck of paint on his clothing, anywhere on his skin, even took a hair, like checked out his, his head to see because, you know, it's aerosolized. Yeah. To which I will argue, shower. Yeah. Because if... If he killed his family at 3 a.m. and didn't leave until 5.40, who, who's to argue that he didn't actually like wear some kind of protective gear when he was spray painting the house, disposed of it on his way to the gym, then spent the whole time at the gym in the shower? Yeah, you know, like you can't. 100%. He, had, he had enough time to clean up after himself. And the spray paint comes back, too, on both sides, right? So their argument is there's not a chance in hell 
that if he was the one that spray painted those messages, that he would walk away without a single speck of it on his person, which I guess could be a compelling argument. However, he lied to police and he said he didn't have any red spray paint, or if he did, it would be really old. And then they found uh, a receipt from like a month earlier where he had bought like a cherry red He's spray a dumbass. paint. And even his And even his dad was like, yeah, he bought that because he was going to spray paint a bullseye so that he and the kids, when they shot paintballs, they could have like a target. Like he even knew why his son had bought it or why he thought he bought it. Uh, and so that's something that the prosecution argues. It's like, why... Why did you lie and say that there's no way you would have new red spray paint when you did? And you even like know why you had it. You had a good reason for having it, but you lied about it. Okay. Again, the state's, uh, the state's case is circumstantial, right? Uh, there's no DNA evidence. There's no, you know, again, medical like examiner. It's, nothing can ever be said like, yes, 100% we know what time they died. So the jury begins deliberations, and while all 12 of them felt in their guts that he definitely did this, they felt uncertain that the prosecutors had met the burden of proof of, like, he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So they take an initial vote, and in the initial vote, it is 7-5 in favor of an acquittal. <gasps> so they decide, okay, let's keep talking this out, because that's, you know, you can't go back with that. <laughs> that's a mistrial. Uh Let's go through the evidence again. Let's talk through some stuff. Now, they are looking through photo evidence, the photos that they showed them of, you know, Tara and Chris together, and they find a picture of the two of them. It's just a normal picture, not a sexy one, but they're like together. They're very coupley. They're like snuggling and smiling. And they notice that there's a timestamp like on the back of it, and it's from October of 2008. Now, on the stand and over and over and over again, November. Chris said that his relationship with Tara started in November or December. And just the sheer fact that he would lie about a detail as seemingly kind of insignificant as like, why couldn't it have started in October? Like, why is that something you need to hide? Why is that something you would need to lie about? Made the jurors feel positive that Chris, if he would lie about that, that he was probably lying about everything. And they took a vote again. And all four, or all four, all 12 jurors found Chris guilty on three counts of first-degree murder on May 5th of 2011, exactly two years to the day that his, um, his family was taken from the world. Now, Chris did file an appeal stating that he had ineffective counsel, which he maybe has kind of an argument for. Like, they never brought up uh, fingerprints and footprint evidence that didn't match him that had been near the window. They, he argues that like he should have objected to them uh, being able to look at the photos with uh, the timestamp on it in that room because that was never part of the evidence in the actual like trial. And you can only look at stuff that was like presented at trial. And those particular photos they looked at were different than the ones they had been shown. They had the timestamps on them, right? And that was like the decision factor. Luckily, the judge disagreed and denied his appeal. Oh, good. Now, here's just like a weird thing that I felt like I felt like for me really like drove it in that I, I I know he did this, but his parents have always stood by him. Right. And they had even after all of this, they had like not nice things to say about Sherry and like barely mentioned their grandsons Weird. who were nine and 11 years old, like had been in their lives for 11 years, you know, like and I assume you assume grandparents love them and I know yeah. they did love them, but it's just like they don't even it's like they don't mention them. And they've always maintained that their son was innocent. 
And here's something that his dad, Ron, said when he was being interviewed by Crime Watch Daily's Anna Garcia. He argues that his son's affair was not motive for murder. Tara was just meeting a need at the time that Sherry wasn't taking care of, oh he said. My when asked God. to clarify, so the, the host, Anna Garcia, Garcia, I watched this. She's like, I'm sorry, excuse me? And then he clarifies, well, I mean, every man has his desires and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. If your wife doesn't respect you, then you're going to go find respect somewhere else. So then Garcia follows up with, so are you saying Sherry was a bad wife? Uh, And then he says, just that at that short brief time, she stepped back from doing uh, her job as a wife. Ew. And so if he was raised by people that clearly believe that it's the, the wife's sole job is to respect her husband, which is also a euphemism for have sex with her husband. Exactly. Um, it's not surprising that they raised a monster. Yeah. And so that is the, sorry I bumbled through it with like coughing and sneezing and yuckiness, but that is the story of the bodyguard who murdered his whole family. That's so nuts, man. Crazy town. I know. Oh my gosh. Well, that was and every compelling time we and have one of these, Yeah. One of these like family annihilator types. It's just, it's maddening. The, I mean, you have to be a bit like a narcissist. Just the hubris, like the such a narcissist, like to think that you, one, have the right to take the life of every member of your family instead of just leave them and maybe lose your job because you sucked and you did something bad. You cheated on your wife. Mm. But if you want to be with that person, then deal with the consequences of your choices and maybe get fired from your job, but get to go be with who you want to be with and set them free. Yeah. You know, like don't do not do that. Yeah. It just yeah. makes me so angry. Me too. So I guess we learned today that bodyguards can be both good and bad. Well, yes, exactly. That's what I learned, too. Yeah. My they God. can save save someone, and they can do the exact opposite of that. I mean, just fascinating. Um, I am thrilled. You guys, like we said, we are in the summer, the throes of the summer. So Yeah, there's some traveling. We'll let you know if there's going to be off weeks due to, you know, summer travels. Yeah. Uh, and if there are, we know that, you know. You love us no matter what. We've got 104 episodes to catch up on if you missed any. Yeah, and we love you no matter what. That's right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Rom Criminals. We will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Rom Crime. Rom Crime.